0: Hello and welcome back to episode 44 of Double Reel. This is the fourth part of our monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. Hopefully you've caught up with the other parts which came out in the past couple of weeks. If not, please do go back to your app, download them and have a listen. These include the first part Double Reel monthly with news, reviews of new releases, including Napoleon and Dream Scenario, my final David Cronenberg Videodrome, and James' look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. The second part is the Fiendish Penalty Shootout Film Quiz, Then our regular features episode, including classics and recommended feature Thelma and Louise, our hidden gem, The Duelists, the one that got away, Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon, and a remake, Watch of Prometheus. Now in our final part for the month, we give you the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the film world in more detail. First of all, a warm welcome to my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James.
1: Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. It's good to be back for the final part of the year.
0: Yeah, I think the way the timings work, this is actually going to land in the new year, but this is our final, final issue of 2023. Um, You'll have noticed the theme running through this month's episode connected to Ridley Scott and the release of his new film, Napoleon. The conversation is no different as today we'll be coming up with Double Reel's top 10 Ridley Scott films. So, as you can imagine, I'm very excited about this, big Ridley Scott fan as I am. I have have an Excel file uh, ready with all of the... um, different permutations that may come up in the uh, uh, in the file I'm not sure if you're using Excel for your top 10 mate no I just have a list ah yes <laughs> <laughs> I find Excel is a great tool for many different situations but when I was thinking about that um, there are times when it's not appropriate do you remember the story of the guy who was complaining to his wife about lack of sex no the, the argument escalated to the point where he emailed her an Excel spreadsheet of the last 27 times he tried to initiate sex oh, God. with dates and times <laughs> and, and all the different excuses she gave each time for not wanting to have sex. Christ! <laughs> she just guaranteed that she will never ever ever have sex with him ever again. So don't use Excel for everything, kids. But apart it's from Excel. that, <laughs> Excel very good. Um, so yeah, we um we always sort of float our you know ideas for the the podcast with our uh, you know lovely listeners on the socials. Uh, this one, you know, we asked people what their favorite, you know, Ridley Scott films were. The usual ones came out, you know, Blade Runner, Alien, and Gladiator were most prominent. There are a few others uh, that get a mention, uh, like Black Hawk Down, American Gangster, Black Rain. Someone did say, uh, G.I. Jane, which I was a little bit surprised by. Um, it's, uh, for me, I mean, a few stats on Ridley Scott. Um, he's made 28 feature films. I've seen all of them. Uh, 12 of which I saw at the cinema. Uh, I own a copy of eighteen of them, so I'm f- I'm kind of all in on Ridley Scott. Uh, I, I don't I don't think you're as big a fan as I am, James. But what are your thoughts about the kind of filmmaker he is?
1: He he can be quite varied. He he loves a kind of historical, not always accurate but period piece. Um, which we'll, we'll obviously probably mention those as we get into this, but he yeah. can also then from there just go to sci-fi, or he can do something like Thelma and Louise, um, or you know war films. Um, he's he's all over the gaff, which I like. I like a director that can do all that. I don't. I don't like a director. Well, I do. Some of my favorite directors have one genre that they're good at, but I, I, I like it more when a director can go. You know what? I'm going to do a film like Alien, and then and about you know. 25 years, I'm going to do um, a film about a gangster. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, I mean, he has done a very pretty wide variety of films. Um, What what genre of films do you think he's sort of best known for?
1: Best known for? It's hard. It depends. Um, I think most people would say films that are sci-fi, just because I think most people would say that their favourite film of his is either Blade Runner or Alien, and that's obviously very sci-fi, sci-fi slash horror. Um, but when I think of Ridley Scott, I do think of very, very, very well done sort of historical films.
0: Is that because Gladiator was the first film of his you saw?
1: Um. Or was it? I don't even necessarily think it was that, and I don't even know if that was the first film of his that I saw. It probably was. Um, but I just think all of his, all of my favourite films of his, um, uh historical films. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying not to say historical as if it's you know an accurate kind of depiction of the people. That yeah, just about just film on. film
0: uh, set in like a period like setting in the Rome past. Yeah, or ancient Rome, or medieval. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, look. One of the things I did with my little Excel spreadsheet um, looked up, you know, sort of looked at his films and looked at what type of film each one of them was. He's made. He's only made one present day war film. I mean two, if you count GI Jane, but I don't because it's not really set during a war. It's about military training, which is Black Hawk Down. Are you um Are you surprised he hasn't done more war films? I mean the the wars that he's depicted are tend to be in his historical films, don't don't they? But not no fewer. You know he hasn't done a World War Two war film. He hasn't done any. I mean he's done Black Hawk Down. Maybe he feels like he doesn't need to do any more. I don't know.
1: Yeah, <clears> um, I, I do think that modern war films aren't as they're not as Hollywood, if you get what I mean. Like, mm. The Hurt Locker is obviously a great film, deserved all of the Oscars and plaudits that it got, but it's not a film that you film for the scale of a battle.
0: Uh, yeah, like, and it's quite a small indie film. I'm not sure it would have got $100 million from, from a big Hollywood studio to make yeah, it, Yeah,
1: right? and the same with like Black Hawk Down. It's not like a film that like, portrays scale. It's more of a, this is like a true story that he wanted to just make a film mm. about, I think. Yeah. Maybe that's why you don't see it because obviously in Gladiator you've got the massive battle against the Germanic um, tribes at the start, yeah. and then you've got um, Kingdom of Heaven is obviously the Crusades. Um, yeah.
0: So I think so he he perhaps he, that. he he depicts war, but usually it's in another sort of in another context. Yeah. And he's also done one contemporary rom com, but it wasn't very good. So let's gloss over that. Um, he's done four films which are set in the recent past and depict a true-life incident. Five, if you count Black Hawk Down in that. Things like White Squall, which was about a, a particular sea voyage in the 60s, and All the Money in the World set in the 70s, House of Gucci set in the recent past, and so on. Um, he's made six sci-fi fantasy films. He's made eight historical epics, as you described, um, like... Uh, and, and by sci-fi and fantasy, I've included legend in there because it doesn't really... Legend isn't really sci-fi, but it doesn't really fit anywhere else. Um, and but in historical epics, I've included things like Exodus, Gods and Kings just because it's the nearest thing that it fits. Um, and uh, But eight of his films are dramas or thrillers set in the present day, but it's interesting that that's not what he's perhaps best known for. Yeah. I think that's probably to do with what films of, of his have had the biggest impact, or have had the biggest impact on the, the the people discussing him, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, American Gangster is one of his most successful films, and that's, yeah, I suppose a sort of modern day kind of crime slash yeah whatever you want to call it. Um, <coughs> pardon me.
0: Yeah, but even that that was set in the sixties and seventies, and it came out in the twenty first century. Yeah. It, it, it again. It's like it's. I think it's a really good gangster film. I think it was interesting when it came out, as some people were expecting maybe something different. What they gone like the Black Godfather, and and it wasn't that. It was something else. I think what there's something else that it was was very good, but um, it's sort of it fits when you look at he's done like he's done House of Gucci, he's done All the Money in the World, uh, you know White School quite a lot of films that are set in the recent past like that and it, it seems to be actually he's actually done quite a few films like that where he goes back to these true life stories with about 30 30 years perspective and has a look at them and it's actually as almost as as, as common a genre of his as as the um uh, as like his sci-fi which he's so well known for you know but yeah. I, I, but I think like you I think it's I think it's variety. I think there are people, you know, Michael Mann, you know, is always telling a certain type of story. Scorsese is is tends to, you know, tends to have similar themes in all his films even though he has done, you know, a fair variety by now. But Ridley Scott just seems to go, you know, I've always wanted to do a film about medieval knights. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So he does a couple of films about medieval knights and chivalry. And he tells those the stories he tells about them are quite done in quite an interesting way and come at it from different angles, but he just decides he's gonna do something and does it. And then you look at a body of work going back forty six years and go, Hmm, that's that's quite a you know I, I think when we when we go through we might kind of see, you know, sometimes these um uh you know themes develop. But he's a very varied director, isn't he?
1: Yeah. That that would probably be his highest praise, is that he's made so many... I mean, he's made a couple of stinkers in the, over his career, like most mm-hmm. directors, but is that he's had so many successful and appreciated mm-hmm. films across Yeah, so many different genres. I don't think there's another director that you could say has had such praise and appreciation for such a variety of genres.
0: Yeah, um, and I guess the the variety of films that he attempts is probably why someone as good as him has done... A few quite bad films, as you say. Everyone's done some stinkers, but some of the films that he that he does, you go, wow! I honestly surprised that he's done something as 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 poor as that, given how good he can be, you know. And yeah. I th- and I think it's because he tries all sorts of things. Um, but yeah. So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss our top ten favorite uh, Ridley Scott films. I have a list of ten. James has a list of ten. Um, but the object of the exercise is to arrive at the end of this episode with a combined top ten, double reels top ten, um, Ridley Scott films. Um and the way we're gonna do that is we're gonna take it in turns to list our top ten films in reverse order. So I'll, you know, James will say his number ten, at the same time I say my number ten and we'll we'll go in reverse order up to one from there. We'll talk briefly about each film as we as, as we go through. Not not too long because I think they're all very well known films and we've only got, you know I've got unlimited time to do this. Um At the end, we're going to take a bit of an average of rankings to arrive at the top 10. So, for example, if something is my number one favorite film, Ridley Scott film of all time, and it's only James's number 10, it's going to land somewhere in the middle on like five, five and a half. But we feel that's sort of fair that, you know, because unless we absolutely perfectly agree on our top 10, um, we've got to find some way of settling on one list. Um, So that's what we're going to do um we'll probably have a little bit of an appeals process if we if someone if one of us thinks something's not quite right like one of us thinks that a film's been unjustly excluded from the top 10 uh and you know really ought to be in there we'll discuss it but obviously if it's got to go in something's got to come out we'll see what shakes out of those discussions um is that okay with you mate you ready to go with that yes I thought before we did the list we could just mention a few films that we can be sure won't feature in this top 10. Don't have to dwell on them for too long, but the ones that I think we know aren't going to be on the list. Um which films of his, you know, are guaranteed, you know, not not, you know, not to be, you know, f- featured among his best when we talk about them?
1: From me or for you?
0: Uh, either of us. So, I mean, which of yours, which of yours do you know are, are not going to be, you know, the top 10 because you think they're terrible so- and they'd never get there in a million years?
1: Out of my top 10, the only one that might surprise some people
0: sorry I didn't mean that of his total filmography which ones do we know won't be in the top 10
1: yeah so I was going to say there's one that might be a little bit kind of like oh I would have picked that over that one but the Mm. ones that are definitely not there for me are um, I mean there's ones that I've you know I've never seen like Black Rain and Someone to Watch Over Me Legend didn't make it for me
0: Um, you've seen Legend I've seen Legend it's it's like it's, it. it's it's very of its time, and I've got a soft spot for it, but I'm conscious of the fact that if if it came out now rather than in 1985 when there was almost no other kind of decent fantasy that it, it would be found wanting, and it's not threatening my top ten mm-hmm. either. Uh,
1: G.I. Jane didn't make it. It's White Squall, Hannibal, and... Yeah, other than that, I don't really want to talk about them too much because people... Well, those ones for me, Robin Hood's definitely not there, Prometheus isn't there, The Counselor isn't there, Exodus Gods and Kings isn't there, Alien Covenant isn't there, Mm -hmm. and yeah, we'll talk about the other ones, because people might think, oh, I actually quite like that one.
0: Uh, Yeah, there's a few knocking around, he's got, I mean, you've mentioned most of the ones I don't like, the other one is A Good Year, which is a terrible idea for a film. Yeah, that's not mine, I mean, it's Ridley Scott trying a rom-com, which is like, alright, try a rom-com, you don't do any others of those, Um, but... It's about a, a, a rich English banker who's a complete arsehole. And I'm not sure why we're supposed to care if he if he finds love and gets a really nice house in the south of France with Marion Cotillard. I don't know why I'm being invested in that story. And Russell Crowe is completely miscast as that character because I know he can do an English accent, right? But you're talking about a, a sort of a, a, an English guy from a posh background and there's lots of stuff to that, do you know what I mean? Which he's mm. just not capable of conveying in the same way that there was probably aspects of the social order of, of Australia that, that a lot of English actors wouldn't just wouldn't have the, that, that there wouldn't be tuned into it, you know? Um, but yeah, forget that. Um, yeah but i mean he has he has i think a lot of films which are guaranteed to be in both of our top 10s because they are you know the, the very easily his strongest films and then there's another layer of ridley scott films which are some people's favorites and not other people's favorites because of the variety of films that he's done and because you know diff, you know they they work in different ways or have different things to commend them so i think that 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 sort of middle group of there's some really good stuff in there but whether it shows up in a given person's top 10 is i is, you know, I think there's more suspense or uncertainty around their presence in a top 10 than others, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm with you.
0: Right, you are. So, as discussed, we're going to go through and discuss the films uh, in order, but before we do that, um, we've agreed that what we're going to do is we're just going to list what our top ten films are, and then we'll walk through them, and then the way we arrive at the final top ten will sort of come out of our discussions. So, what do you want to do? Do you want to do one to ten, or ten to one?
1: Ten to one. So okay. So, both do our ten, both do our nines, and we'll both kind of discuss yeah. what we think about that Very film. to so each film that we discuss discussing gets a little bit of, like, why we like to, and uh, the yeah, kind of sure. basis of why we like the story, too then... That. Okay,
0: well, shall we start? So, let's do that. Um, So, my number 10 is The Duelists. Okay.
1: Surprised at that because of how much you absolutely adore that film and told me to watch it for nearly two decades. Um, But, yeah. And what's your number 10? My number 10 is American Gangster. Um, I enjoyed it, um, but I thought it was quite long for a uh, for for what it was, um, and that's
0: why it's not as high up on my list. It 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 didn't quite make my top ten because while I thought it was very good, I I did get this nagging feeling throughout the film that 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 they could have made more of what they had, including Denzel Washington in the lead. You know, yeah. But it's very good. It's very good for what it is. But yeah, I'm not surprised it's slightly lower down in your list. Yeah. Um, my number nine is The Martian. Okay.
1: My number 9 is The Duelists. Um only watched it for the first time quite recently um, and I enjoyed it but you can sort of tell that it was his first film made for about a tenner so I feel like if he'd made that now with a big budget it would have been further up my list
0: yeah he'd, he'd be, he would make a different film now I mean what he yeah. did back then was here is a really good debut with with the resources available and the the only criticism it's not even a criticism the only reason it's at 10 and not higher up for me is as much as I like it I think it's very good it's exactly the right film for, for what it for what it's meant to be it's just that he went on to do more with his other films um, yeah. and it's you know no, no criticism because I think if you look at like how many people think *Reservoir Dogs* is Tarantino's best film? Most people think that he sort of went out and with with an expanded scope after after making that yeah. splash with his first film. It's quite common. Some people's debut film is their best film, but you know, I think with Ridley Scott, it isn't. For me, *The Martian* is. I really like *The Martian*. Um, I, I I I expect it's higher up on your list. Um, in fact, I love it. I think it's a really, really, really enjoyable film. There's something about it though that it's quite feel good, and the none all, all of which I really enjoy. And it's quite it's you know it's it's a nice feeling when Matt Damon's kind of listening to kind of disco music because that's all that Jessica Chastain left on her music player and all that. But that combined with the fact that we wouldn't be making a film where the guy dies at the end, it's um it's a really enjoyable film and it's about ingenuity and it's all of those things. But that the, the In terms of stakes and kind of, you know, depths of, you know, depths of what people go through, you kind of never in any doubt that he's going to get home, do you know what I mean? As much as it's hugely enjoyable and really well made all the way through. Yeah, no, I see that. Um, Okay, so we've done each other's nine. I've got my number eight is uh, Napoleon. Okay.
1: What's your number eight? My number eight is House of Gucci.
0: House of Gucci.
1: I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a very interesting sort of slow burner um, about some of the worst people um, to exist in the fashion industry. I thought they were. I thought they did a really good job at making them all inherently dislikable. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know
0: if it was intentional, but I think it, I think that film surprised a few people, and I think that's a that's a feature of a lot of Ridley Scott's most recent films. I think there's a lot to be said for an 80 year old director who's been film making films since the 1970s that his films are surprising people. I don't think people were quite expecting what they got. Because while House of Gucci has some you know, elements which are kind of sending things up a little bit or, or amusing or in, in, in a number of ways, it's actually I think it's darker than what people were expecting. I think it actually plays out like a gangster film set in the fashion industry. You know, there's there's the tone. I, I don't. I think some people expect a really camp and and funny tone, but it's about murder and and greed and families breaking apart. And I think he he does that. The bit that's kind of a bit kind of silly is the um, Jared Leto stuff, which I think you you found a little bit more entertaining second time around, didn't you? I
1: think I, because I'd watched the Super Mario Brothers movie and then watched House of Gucci like a couple of weeks later, it just made me think it was Chris Pratt trying to do his <laughs> Mario accent. And see if you just watch it and watch his, just watch him. It's if you don't take him seriously because obviously he takes everything seriously because he's a big method. If you don't take him seriously, I think you'll enjoy his performance a little bit more.
0: Yeah, um, the th- the that's thing what is, I enjoyed about yeah, I mean Jared Leto is probably taking himself very seriously, but Ridley Scott is very good at allowing the the actor to be doing one thing. while he might he's doing something different. The biggest example of that is in Blade Runner, where if you talk to, where Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford had different opinions about whether Deckard is really a replicant. And that was okay, because Ridley Scott's interpretation of the story is that um, Deckard's a replicant. Many other people's are that he isn't, that he's human. But um, Harrison Ford felt, either because that's the way he felt about the story, and or because um, uh, that's how he thinks Deckard is. Deckard believes he's human, so Harrison Ford has to play him that way. And Ridley Scott's like, fine, I'm directing him one way, uh, you're, you're playing him another way, we'll meet in the middle. So mm-hmm. it kind of works. Jared Leto's off doing his thing, and he, he provides a little bit of comic relief. And otherwise, what is quite—it's actually a much more tense and somber story than really I was expecting. Film, yeah. And I, I liked that, but I think some people were expecting because it was set in a fashion house. They were expecting it was going to be like Camper than it that it ended up being. Um, Napoleon is—you um, haven't seen it yet, have you? So, no. Yeah, I mean, I I really really like Napoleon. I think it's a really very good film. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it not on the Why is it not on the top here? I think it's because while, while I think what, Napoleon, what Ridley Scott's done with the Napoleon story is about as good as anyone could do in one film about such a big and complex character, I don't think it's it, it it is a I don't think it completes the story the way some of his other films do. Some of his other films you get right to the end and you go, Ridley Scott is completely almost like nailed that story and taken you all the way through to the end of it. And Napoleon is always going to be a bit of an enigma. I think you would get to the end of any Napoleon story and, and still feel a little bit like he was a mystery. So it's not really a criticism of the film. I just think it, it, it lands where it lands in my top 10, if you see what I
1: mean. Yeah, no, I get, I kind of get that feeling from most people that have seen it, that it's, uh... It's not his best, but he's done as good a job as most people would with that story, like you I said.
0: I think what he's put in the story is brilliant, but I, most people, I think, can't get over the fact that a lot of what they want from a Napoleon story isn't there, which is Just imp- imp- and that, impossible yeah. to avoid. Um, but that's the way it goes. Um, okay, we've, that's all right. So what, my number seven uh, is Kingdom of Heaven. I don't mean it to rhyme like that. It's like Dr. Seuss's uh, Ridley Scott's Top 10. <laughs> um, what's your number seven?
1: Uh, my number 7 is Black
0: Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down. Now that's slightly higher up in my list but um yeah so what is it you love about Black Hawk Down?
1: Um it's very tense. It's almost like the um it's almost like Black Hawk Down walked so films like The Hurt Locker and Jarhead could run. That's the way I see it. It's mm-hmm. uh it, yeah. it's it sort of set the kind of tone for like these kind of modern day war films set in like hot um third world desert kind of scenarios um and yeah it's just it's a really sad tense story it's very intense um
0: yeah i mean it's it's such a powerful depiction of like the intensity of modern urban warfare you know yeah. it's uh, i think it's <clears throat> it's interesting because it's i think it's based on a book um by someone who how do I put it? The guy who writes with um, Catherine Bigelow and her stuff like Zero Dark Thirty and um, uh, The Hurt Locker, he may not be a um, a primary source. Well, he, he may not be the one who's actually writing it, but he's he's a source that they call upon for his depiction of like what war is like in the modern era. Um, and it's like, it's without commenting too much on the rights and wrongs of it. It's just saying this is what it's like. And I think it's really striking is obviously the intensity of the battle, but also the fact that around every corner is a bunch of civilians. And I think people, people are maybe becoming conscious now that, you know, more civilians than soldiers are, are killed and wounded in war nowadays. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's just really interesting of watching a, a city just completely turned upside down, but you know, like a war is, is happening as live where people are living. Oh, it's a really powerful film for that. Um, there were criticisms of the time that it, um, it, it didn't comment enough on why the Americans were there or the rights and the wrongs of it. But I think it was a humanitarian mission by the Americans. The fact that the like American for- foreign policy for a couple of decades prior to that had caused the problems in Somalia. It's like, like yeah, read a history book or, you know, follow current affairs to know what's going on there. And you'd still get what you need out of Black Hawk Down, which is that's what that intense battle was like. It doesn't comment either way. Um, have you have you seen Kingdom of Heaven? I'm not sure if you have. I have. Um
1: it's not on my list. That was one of the ones that I didn't put on here. The director's cut is much better than the original, but I wasn't doing director's cuts for this because that's not the film that was released.
0: Yeah, so I think I've taken a slightly different view on that than you because I can't I I can't sort of rank Blade Runner where I rank it if I don't take the director's cut into account. Yeah. Although to be fair the director's cut was released at the cinema, so it's almost like you know, I'm kind of like uh, ranking Blade Runner, you know, cinema release from 1992 onwards, kind of thing. Um, so I presume you you saw the original theatrical cut, yeah? Uh, yeah, I've just a Kingdom of the, Heaven. Yeah, yeah, so that that's the thing. The director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven it is a completely different film because the the theatrical cut you know Ridley Scott didn't have right a final cut on the film the studio insisted on about half an hour of cuts and that takes so much of the meaning and depth out of the story with that meaning and depth back in the story that is an absolutely stupendous historical drama um the battle scenes are immense but also all the 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 background to Eva Green's character the why the why the crusaders are there the the uh, the, the dynamics between them and Saladin uh, and all all of that stuff is absolutely superb in in the director's cut. So on that one, I am taking the director's cut. And if I was taking the, the theatrical cut only, that wouldn't be in my top ten either. That's the funny thing about that about that film. So I get where you're coming from. Um. Okay. So my uh my six is Thelma and Louise. What's yours? I'll Also, my number six. Oh, excellent! We've absolutely nailed down in this. So. This is a, a a new one for you actually because you know you you've only recently watched it, um, but yeah it's uh we j- we just talked about it on the pod but I, I recall you saying you it it is quite different to a number of his other films isn't it?
1: Yeah, I feel like it's one of those ones that sort of stands out more than any of the other ones because he's done The Martian, he's done Blade Runner, and he's done Prometheus and Alien Covenant and these sort of like sci-fi films, and then he's done. Kingdom of Heaven, Gladiator, Last Duel, The Duelist. So he's got these historical films and now he's done Napoleon. Um, and he's done a couple of like G.I. Jane's and Black Hawk Down, which I know we've said G.I. Jane isn't a modern war film. It's more about the boot camp. Mm-hmm. But Thelma and Louise, I don't think you can say there's another film in his filmography that is, oh yeah, so remember when he did Thelma Louise? And then he also did this, which was sort of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, like, not, not even like, you can't say that Kingdom of Heaven and Gladiator are like, this like similar films are two completely different periods, but it's a big epic film about war, <laughs> Do you know. There are it's there like are link there are
0: linkages between this between these other films. I mean it's you can compare Gladiator and 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 Kingdom of Heaven by saying, well look look how is war portrayed in, you know, first century Rome versus 14th century um, you know, Crusades in the Middle East. You know, there are arrows and swords. You look at it and go, okay, well they're very, very different eras, but there are things to compare um also kingdom of heaven to last jewel because they're set in the medieval period and, and part of the discussion is chivalry and honor um so there's commonalities to some of these other films but yeah Thelma and Louise is I think the interesting thing about Thelma and Louise is he wasn't originally going to be doing it but he he, he decided to direct it and um People express surprise, oh, wow, this is a really character-driven film. It's not all about the, the visuals and all that sort of thing. But he was never just about the visuals. I mean, Blade Runner looks amazing, but actually the the discussion really is of the characters and what they do and why they do it and what it says. Um, and even aside from Thelma Louise, a lot of actors can be said to have given really terrific performances in Ridley Scott films, you know? Um, and, you know, but the fact that he he tells a story that depends more on the two characters and how they relate to each other than in other films. It, it, it It's like you're watching him flex different muscles and he has them. He shows off skills that he, that he, that he definitely has, but he's, he's using that more than, than perhaps of his other ones. Like you say, you talked about the visuals, the visuals are, you know, it looks visually impressive, but it's, he's it's really just about making sure the camera's in the right place to show them in the Midwest. Whereas some of his his you know cinematography challenges are different in his other films so it's just but a terrific film um if you i, th- I think i wanted an improm- impromptu top 10 road movies on the pod and that was definitely in there it's a very very good road movie and funnily enough not um not every like foreign director taps into like american Sort of themes as well as Ridley Scott does. I mean, he's he's a British director. He hasn't really adopted the American lifestyle. I think he still lives in Europe, but his films set in America they do you know, especially Thelma Rees, they they do sort of capture the spirit of 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 the states, don't they? It feels like a very American film.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, I would agree. It's uh, feels like very Route sixty
0: six. Yes, kind of exactly. Yeah, through the deserts. So yeah. Uh, but I mean Badlands is is definitely the template that was set for that. That's the early uh, road movie um with Martin Sheen's Sissy Spacek. and you kind of uh it's compulsory now for uh, you know, a road movie to show you the vast expanse of America. It's where why you're driving through is, is as important as who's driving, you know? Yeah. Okay, so we're now at five. My number five is Black Hawk Down. I've got it two places higher than yours. Um, what's your number five? My number five is—I
1: don't know. If this is going to be a bit of a controversial one, but my number five is Blade
0: Runner. So, full disclosure, to make sure that the the, the model I've got for like calculating, you know, a the, the one top ten from our two different lists I played out where I thought you know you might put films and I guess that you would put Blade Runner number five yeah
1: um never been into it as much as you have I've I've never really given a shit about that kind of cyberpunk kind of futuristic stuff um it's still a very good film and it's got some very good moments especially the speech at the end and Harrison Ford is obviously epic but it's I don't know, for me it's... Maybe it was more of a case of if you were watching the film at the time, people were thinking, oh, is this what the world's going to be like? At that time, and I feel like those films have sort of had their time a little bit because, you know, 2001, for example, they were expecting all that stuff to have happened by 2001 and 2001, you know, we didn't. So for me, those films sort of get lost on me and that's not criticising what is obviously a great story, but for me, it's never
0: been one of those films for me i i I understand that i understand your response to it being different funnily enough the whole cyberpunk thing never really took off i mean when i mean even though blade runner wasn't in fact maybe even because blade runner wasn't a massive hit it, it was a cult hit for a long time which kind of does sometimes make it more influential in an odd way because people become loyal to it and, and, and devoted to it. But when 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 Blade Runner came out and Japanese anime was starting to come out and William Gibson was writing cyberpunk novels, it seemed like cyberpunk was going to be a thing. Um, but your parallel with 2001 is very well chosen. 2001's vision of the future is no longer... Like the the main kind of cultural sort of touchstone, I think, for people's thoughts of the future, and neither is neither is Blade Runner. Funnily enough, I think the the most influential vision of the future that Ridley Scott's given us is actually Alien. Yeah. That that idea of a spaceship being almost like a truck in space. You know, it's it's got someone's coat hanging in the corner. It's got someone's stuff. It's people have got lockers. It's a bit damp in Sector C. Um, you know, red dwarf doesn't exist unless Blade you know, unless Alien does. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a more influential vision of the future, really. But look, I'll keep my powder dry on Blade Runner. But I, look, I understand um, it, it, it. It tapped into a certain time. Also, people who saw Blade Runner in the eighties went on a twenty five year journey with that film because it comes out in nineteen eighty two, has this sort of big influence, and then. But isn't a hit. And there's a whole controversy you know, controversy over it when it comes out. Like, you know, Ridley Scott spent a lot of money. You know, it, it comes out at the same time as E.T. And people just want different sci-fi to what he's giving them. Um, he falls out with producers over it because he feels like they screwed him, t- took his film off him. Then the director's cut comes out. And if you've been a fan of that film for a decade, right and then the director's cut comes out. It's not just that you, the film's, you, oh, wow, that film's much better than I thought it was. You sort of feel a sense of personal vindication to have been a fan of the film. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you see? That's what we should have got, you know? And then it keeps developing, and it keeps growing, and then further cuts come out, the final cut, and it's like, it's... With Ridley Scott, the director's cuts have always been more than just marketing, because the final cut, I think, came out in 2007, so 25 years after his original release of the film, he was finally able to say, "Look, you can now watch the film as I intended it." And if you've gone on that journey, it's always going to have a bigger impact than if you um, uh, if you've come to it much later, and that none of that stuff is going to mean as much to you. So I understand where you're coming from. Uh, okay, I mean, I'll I might talk a bit uh, longer about Blade Runner later because it it does show up in my list. You wouldn't be surprised to hear. Um, what's your number four?
1: I went for The Martian at number four.
0: The Martian. Now, my number four is The Last Duel. Okay. Um, so, tell me why you've, The Martian is five places higher for you than it is for me.
1: I just, I really enjoyed it. I think, what I enjoyed about it is that I didn't think it was expected to get as much buzz as it did at the award ceremonies, and just as much buzz as it did in general um it obviously made loads and loads of money but i don't think that was the reason they made the film and i think that's what i like about it you know when f- someone wants to make a film that's either trying to bait oscars or make a billion you either speak to you know michael bay or alejandro gonzalez and Yurito. Mm-hmm. those the like for the oscars you go for one of those kind of directors or for a billion dollars you just go to michael bay or whoever wants to yeah, direct yeah, and yeah, fast and furious yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: whereas this film just felt like they thought oh, what would it be really cool if we were doing this kind of not so far in the future mission on mars and they're doing loads of tests and someone ends up getting stranded there and having to adapt and that kind of story of it and i thought you could get stuck in a rut with where the story would go from there it's like okay so he's managed to grow some like some like fruit and veg on mars where does he go from here but then it's a case of oh yeah we can use this machine to communicate in almost kind of like morse code slash sign language sign like kind of like sundial communication um you know hundreds of millions of miles away i don't even know if um Mars is that far away, but you get my point. And I thought yeah. from there, I thought the story was really good. I thought Matt Damon as the lead was really good. I thought he he's really good in a lead because he's got like that kind of comedic timing, but he's also good at he's just good at sci-fi and just good at being like a kind of leading man for that type of film. Um, I liked how it was just. It was beautiful as well. I don't think it gets enough appreciation. Yeah,
0: we, we we mentioned in it. I think it came up in the Penalty Shootout film quiz, which is out now, folks. The The Martian wasn't even nominated for cinematography, and it's just like, I almost I almost think I almost think sometimes Ridley Scott's films looking good is taken for granted. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, it's Ridley Scott. Of course, it's good. So like, yeah, yeah, but but still. <laughs> <laughs> everything about the way that film is shot is better than this film that you've given a nomination to, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, the Matt Damon performance, it's, I think it's another t- tick in the box for um, for Ridley Scott. I mean, we, we have talked about how he gives his actors a lot of freedom. So there's almost, you know, there's probably no doubt that Matt Damon has brought a lot of that to the character himself. But Ridley Scott is very, very good at saying, I, I mean, I'll go back to, there's a really good podcast where the cast of White School get together after 25 years and and talk about their experiences on the film. And the guy's like six, you know, they were like 18, 19 when they were cast. One audition, you know, you don't come back for 18 readings, one audition and really Scott says, Yeah, you're 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 the one for me, you're you're in the part. And then he and then he sort of he puts them on, you know, gives them actually quite a lot of freedom with their performance because he knows that he can get a performance out of them in different ways. And different directors do different stuff. Like people talk about David Fincher, he makes you do hundred takes and you don't know what was wrong with the first ninety nine. And sometimes you, you notice the reason you need another take is he he brushes past you and moves an extra five inches to the left, right? So it's not even about you. But I think what Ridley Scott does is he says, well, I'm, I'm making the whole film and I've picked the right person and I've put them in the right environment and I'm pointing the camera in the right direction and I'm making them feel what they need to feel. And he his, uh, so I think he has to take some credit for Matt Damon's performance because what he does is that the, the whole tone of 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 the Martian I should always, I said that part of the reason the Martian's not as hype on my list is almost a backhanded compliment so the whole thing's a bit feel good but it that's absolutely right for this film you know and Matt Damon's performance is absolutely right for this film because it's his he he's struggling with it he's worried that he may die on Mars right and at the same time he manages to balance that with the like the the kind of irrepressible optimism of the character. In the same way that Matt Damon makes a very personable lead in air that comes out this year because he's just got that air about him and it just makes you... He's hes so personable throughout this film that he, you know, throughout everything you're just absolutely willing him to kind of get back, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I just... I think everyone that's seen it probably enjoyed it and everyone that loved it loved it for all the reasons that we've just said. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's one of those films like if you didn't like it then you're in the minority.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Um and for me the the last Duel is I mean it's made my number 4 and and I think people can guess what my what my top 3 are. So I think one thing is that aren't there aren't that many directors right who when they're making a film in 2021 aged 84, okay, after a long career in which you might think they've done everything there is to be done he does a film which, for me, is as good as literally everything he's ever done apart from his absolute top three films. I think The Last Duel is an absolutely fantastic film. I think it's an absolute scandal that it wasn't nominated for anything at the awards ceremony. Uh, The fact that it didn't do well at the box office, it was a a shit time for the box office and it's not a feel-good film. And I... I, You know, some people took issue with the fact that it depicts the, the same rape three different times, but... I I look at it and say well, the film the accused did exactly the same thing and I think you need to I think you need to show the film the way it was shown the um sh- uh, you know and obviously he's not the first person to tell the, tell the same story from three different angles but I think that's beautifully handled and it's not just the details of the case which are you know realizing Jodie Comer's treatment and grievance the fact that she was you know treated the way that she was first by the person who raped her and then by the trial and everything else. But the beautiful nuances of, of the different performances, again, especially Matt Damon, because you're watching Matt Damon. He's the one who looks the most different across the three different accounts of the story. And as each part of the film unfolds, you realize, God, he just, he's, you know, you can, you know, I know why nobody likes him. He's like able in so many ways, but he's just not able to kind of handle himself at court and all the different, it's like, again, it's a film that repays many, many rewatches as well, I think, because there's so much to it. Um, and I'm I'm going to guess that the last jewel is, is is coming up on your list.
1: Yes, yes, it is.
0: Okay, let, let's do let's do our threes. Um, my number three is Gladiator. Okay. And what's your number three? My
1: number three is the last
0: jewel. Yeah. I um, mean, well, just look, just let, let's what... let's do the last jewel then, because I was you know I was just on there.
1: Just sort of echoing what you said. I thought it was a, a really good story. I don't want to sound like a you know like a, a broken record, but. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was surprised at how good it was. Um, I want to talk more about more about how it captured the setting as opposed to everything that you've just said because I agree with all of that. I really like the kind of just the dark kind of atmosphere of the fourteenth century that you managed to capture and the kind of the utter you know lack of weight they put into the kind of account of a woman and the woman mm-hmm. can't even say, "Look, this is what happened to me," and it's they didn't just. You know, in today's day and age, it would go to court and there would be loads of different things. Back then, it was, your husband has to fight for you and if he's wrong, he dies and you get executed for basically telling a fib. Yeah. Like yeah. that that kind of insanity. It's worked, really it's really hard-hitting, isn't you. it? Um, and yeah, I like the way it was depicted three times. I think it was important to show it that way. And, you know, when it comes to the, the account of... Um, Marguerite Jodie Comer's character, it says that, you know, it's the truth, because every time it says the truth according to Jean de Carouge, so Matt Damon, and then it says the truth according to Jacques Legree, and then when it says the truth according
0: to Marguerite de Carouge, it says the truth. It, so yeah, it, like, the Marguerite de Carouge fades out just leaving the words the truth up on screen, doesn't yeah, it? Um, it's it's very hard hitting, isn't it? I mean Ridley Scott's, you know, actually don't forget that he was the one who turned, you know, Sigourney Weaver into an iconic sort of feminist icon. He's always been a bit of a feminist, really, by the looks of it. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, the in terms of the setting, I, I remember when I reviewed this. I think when we talked about it for for the Double Reel Awards, where it did very well, um, we gave it awards recognition. Everyone, we we knew, you know, um, you'll come around eventually. Um, but uh, the medieval setting it, it, again. Not the first time people have said that one of Ridley Scott's greatest strengths is bringing the world in which his story is set completely to life um you know when you know when when the chickens run across the path of the horse and cart. I believe 100% those are medieval chickens, you know. Those chickens went to drama school and they were huh. they fucking they do the perfect performance of medieval chickens. They're not just chickens, you know, every detail just looks absolutely perfect. And the first sort of big opening sort of wide shot in the opening sort of 5 minutes of the last duel is you get to see the arena where the trial by combat's going to take place and then it flashes back, right? And it's it's a it's a snowy day which has washed a lot of the color out and you, you see all the people kind of queuing up and you see the king smirking and you see everything line up. And it's you've got the you've got the pageantry, but because of the way he's lit it, it's very dark. And the darkness of the visual reflects the darkness of the story. And that's the other thing that's beautiful about Ridley Scott, because he's always known for making his films look great, yeah. But he's also making his, his films look visually compelling. They don't always look beautiful. Like a lot of, you know, Blade Runner is the film he's perhaps most famous for the visual splendor of what he films, right? But a lot of Blade Runner is actually fucking ugly because it's nasty, kind of dystopian, futuristic, you know? But he, he makes it incredibly good to look at without making it look pretty and therefore less realistic, if you see what I mean. And yeah. it's such, such a realistic portrayal of, um, of, of of the Middle Ages, isn't it? Not just in the way that it looks, but in the... Like you see, you talked about the way she's treated and the trial and everything. It's just like, it's such... Such a fantastic kind of cinematic document of, 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 of a completely fully realized world, you know.
1: Yeah, I think my final comment would be that he's managed to <clears throat> portray a time that was so dark and miserable and grisly, but not make it impossible to watch. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, we're going through a period now where these films, like Godzilla, and you know, you can you can name most films and say, "Well, I couldn't, I couldn't see half the thing because it was that dark." He's managed to can kind of portray that era in that setting and still make it
0: watchable Mm -hmm.
1: but yeah that's my number three
0: yeah very good we're down to our top two i think it's starting to be like a little bit more predictable what uh uh, what people are going to say so my number two is alien and i, I i'm i'm gonna <coughs> i'm gonna bet five pence that it's your number two as well yes it isn't my number two just so, because i think we know what
1: my number ones are going yeah. to be
0: tell tell me what you're tell me what you love about uh, alien
1: so i think this might be a bit of a weird one but i've always enjoyed alien ever since uh, i went to disney world and there's a ride at i think we went on it at MGM Studios is it called no it's not called yeah MGM Universal MGM. Universal no 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 it's in Disney it's not it's not MGM oh. Studios, it's Hollywood Studios and it's the kind of great movie ride and you sit on one of those slow moving carts and you go oh through, yes of
0: course yes it is you, right sorry yeah yeah
1: you go through it you go through a gangster bit and you go through Alice in Wonderland and it's like oh look at all these things and then it takes you to the alien bit and you go through one of the kind of spaceships tunnels and an alien drops down and you're like oh that's, that's really scary and I thought oh now that got such a reaction out of everyone else on the ride. Everyone that was like older than me, because when I first went on that ride, I was just turned eleven, mm-hmm. and then the second time I went on it, I was seventeen and mm-hmm. probably at the a, a good age to watch that film with right. I better watch that film because it gets a really big reaction both times, mm-hmm. and I did, and I thought, yeah, that's that's why because that film is terrifying, but it's terrifying in a way that. You know, it's it's not ridiculous. You know, like it's not making you just try and jump out your skin, it's it's the whole environment of it. You're trapped on a spaceship with this nine foot killing machine. Um and obviously it's got Sigourney Weaver being an absolute badass. So yeah, it just it ticks all the boxes for me, um, in terms of yeah. what you expect from a Ridley Scott film, from a kind of sci-fi slash horror film. It's got great performances. The fact that it was made you know, 44, 45 years ago now and still, you know, it's still as scary and still holds up, I think, pretty well. holds up better than, I would say, The Duelists and even Blade Runner and even some of the films like Thelma and Louise and those kind of films. It still holds up as like a, wow, like imagine being able to create that setting. I know we'd, we'd seen it quite recently. Well, people had seen Star Wars quite recently and gone, wow, George Lucas has managed to make this this world seemed like so vivid and real. But that, yeah, it's just every, every box it takes. Great performances, great story, great script, great scales from what you want in a horror film, but not too gratuitous. Like You've got the kind of chest, the, the chest buster scene, sorry, which is probably the most famous scene out of any mm-hmm. horror film.
0: Um,
1: yeah, just, just superb. Just absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny what you say about Star Wars because I think the difference is that as I think you're right that Star Wars brought everything vivid to life, but the first thing you see about Star Wars is that it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Whereas Alien, although it's obviously set quite far in the future, there's something about it that feels close to home yeah. because it's full of characters. If they weren't on a, um, if they weren't in a spaceship, you could see them being part of like you know the the uh, some sort of uh, present day. I don't know, uh, maritime operation, you know, and you've got the officers, and you've got the more blue collar people and the different treatment and the different kind of contractual bonuses and the the way they live and the watching them kind of eat their dinner at a table makes you feel like oh, this feels like real people, you know? And Ridley Scott's, you know, absolute triumph of designing that is that he brings that spaceship so completely to life. It's just It's just amazing. And it's not just about, oh, this is what looks cool. It's like, it looks cool. But it looks absolutely like, yeah, that looks like a big kind of empty sort of industrial space that would be midway through a ship like that. So when Harry Dean Stanton walks through it, you just you never once feel like, oh, nice set. It's like, oh, bloody hell, where's Harry Dean Stanton going, you know? And um, the I think as well as the kind of, look, it's beautifully done, it's beautifully cut. Um, the a- editing is always amazing in... Um, uh, Uh, in in Ridley Scott films and we'll talk about that more when we get to your number one but it's like apart from the chest like you say apart from the chest burster scene there's not that many kind of really over-the-top gory scares because he cuts it so beautifully you sometimes think you've seen more than you have the other thing that's so lasting about about why this film is so scary is because as well as so perfectly designing the ship and so vividly bringing to life real down-to-earth characters that you can believe in you know Ripley is the stickler for the rules and you know the different characters with the different opinions you know yafet koto's great all of that the the the, he's so beautifully realized the design of that alien hasn't he because every time you look at that alien it's another it's a funny thing as well because sometimes the creature is scarier when you can't see it in these films
1: well, oh, yeah, the, that was the whole point of films like Jaws. You yeah. see it for about five minutes total. But
0: the more you see of the alien as the film goes on and by the end, there's a final scene where the alien kind of appears and you actually see it, more of it. It just gets scarier the more you look at it. You think, fucking hell, that's such a scary creature. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. why. And that's one of the reasons why it's resonated as long as it has. Um, obviously, there's all sorts of, sort of mythology and lore around it. The Ripley character, you're probably aware of this, was originally a man in the script. Yeah, yeah. And Ridley Scott decided maybe not on his own because he obviously was took the producers and co-writers were sort of quite, you know, quite a big part of the creative process. They agreed that it would work better if it was a woman because, um, the, you know, Seems obvious now, right? <laughs> but you know, women can be brave and resourceful characters as well. But I think that the beauty of making the character a woman is that even when it's Sigourney Weaver, and she's so intelligent, right? She's she's you know she's tough and she she's not going to take any shit, and she finds a way through. But there's something about, um, you know, a man might maybe try and hide how scared he is, whereas you know a, a woman feels more like all the people in the audience do. Like, God, that would shit me up. Do you know what I mean? And she's the perfect expression of the fear that all the audience would feel if they were in the same situation, you know, and you know, Sigourney Weaver, you know, star is born instantly as soon as she was in that. Um, Other fun bits of mythology around it. It was co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who originally played almost uh, an identical plot line to that in Dark Star, except it was played for comedy that time in John Carpenter's debut film. And this time he played it for horror. Um, It was just everything in it just works so well. And, Without, uh, I don't think there was much thought of a sequel when they made that film, but the, the world they created is so compelling and so realized that you could make another film simply because um, the idea that the corporation sent them down onto the planet to get the, the alien because they want it as a weapon and all the people are expendable. It just adds another layer. It's like, oh, wow, the people who sent us here, the people that we were sending distress signals to don't fucking care if we die. It just adds to that that idea of being absolutely fucked out in the middle of nowhere you know, how the fuck do we get out of this? Which meant that when James Cameron came to do his sequel, there was so there was such a richness to the world. And given that it's about one alien on one ship going after seven crew members, it's such a r- richly sort of realized world that, you know, G- James Cameron was able to expand it so, so, you know, beautifully in, in the sequel. Um, brilliant stuff. And I think same for you as for me. The reason it's number two and not number one is that there's one... One more film, which is just so cherished that it, it it's always going to be above it. So, James, uh, I think we know what our, our number ones are. Mine is Blade Runner. Yours is Gladiator. Now, Gladiator. Tell me why you love Gladiator so much.
1: It's just it's just brilliant in every every way. It's Ridley Scott at his best. A perfect casting of Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix and Oliver Reed and everyone in that film. It just does so well. Um, it tells a really sad story, but like interesting story of a general in the Roman army who's quite cocky at the start. I don't think that gets spoken about enough about how when he's talking to the cavalry and he's saying, if you wake up in a field, do not worry, you're, um, you're in Elysium and you're already dead kind of thing. And it's all laughing and chuckling. And then he's still quite a respectful soldier, especially when he's talking to the... the the emperor and um, Commodus, but then obviously, tragically, loses his family. He's betrayed um, by Commodus and um, the other soldiers and uh, generals and officers, and then he has to go in this. He doesn't even have to. He's just he's kind of thrown into it, and it ends up becoming the story of oh well now I'm in Rome I can, um I can get my revenge and that kind of thing, um, and yeah it's got, every, great speech from a Ridley Scott film, the top five should be from Gladiator. I, I will die on this hill. I'll die on the seven hills of Rome about <laughs> how good those um, speeches are. Um, Oliver Reed's, um Russell Crowe has a couple, Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, you know, they're all all the speeches are great. Um, obviously there's no historical accuracy and sometimes that can mark a film down. Um, but yeah, the scenes in the Colosseum. you know, we have three unbelievable scenes in the Coliseum and then the ones out in it is it in Zanzibar? Is it Zanzibar? Oh, in, in the in the African provinces anyway. Can't, yeah. be, can't be Zanzibar, yeah. that's too far okay. away. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just it's so beautifully shot. The score is unbelievable. Can't believe Hans Zimmer didn't win. I mean, I can, but it's a travesty that he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, brilliant film. Don't know how they're going to do a Gladiator 2, Gladiator Harder, but um
0: yeah. There's a there's a, an absolutely insane version of Gladiator 2 that was uh, stemmed from a screenplay by the 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 singer-songwriter Nick Cave. Don't ask me why he was involved.
1: Oh, absolutely not.
0: Um which uh has to be read to be believed by the way. It's I, it's not going to be that that one. I think what they're doing in 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 Gladiator 2 it's just like the next generation. It's 20 years later. Um but um yeah, look, I echo a lot of that. Um, you know, it made my, it made my top three. So I'm, I'm, you know, no control, no controversy over whether gladiators is a great film. It's, is this, is this the film that made you sit up and go, wow, who directed this? Ridley Scott, you say, right. Tell me more about him or or were you already aware of him and, and and, and thinking about watching films of his?
1: No. So my first memory of this film is my grandmother. um, This is quite a funny story about my grandmother. Uh, She was actually diagnosed with cancer in 2006 and she went on a bit of a mental spending spree thinking, well, I want to leave a lot of stuff behind for my grandchildren. So she Mm -hmm. bought a 55-inch plasma TV, which was state-of-the-art at the time, but it probably wouldn't be anything good now. Surround sound, all sorts. And I remember she stayed on the ninth floor. I remember getting in the lift and by about the fourth floor, I could hear gladiator (laughs) from her flat on the ninth floor. That's amazing. And she was obviously very deaf, my grandma, so... (laughs) I remember just going in and seeing all this fancy new stuff she bought. She bought like my cousin's like a like an Xbox um, and all that stuff. Thinking, well, you know, if I don't, you know, make it, she ended up making it. And then basically, her first reaction was, "Oh, well, for fuck's sake, I've got to pay off that telly now." But um, I just remember going in and I thought, "What the fuck is that noise?" And then I just remember, like, I think my mum said, well, I'm "Going to turn the volume down a little bit." And my grandma ironically went, "What?" Because she couldn't hear. her. Um, but yeah, I just remember going, what's this all about? What's this racket? And then just sat down. And I was It was about halfway through and I watched some of it. And I thought, yeah, I'll give this a proper watch when you know um, it's not halfway through and not bursting my eardrums. So it wasn't a case of I watched the film and I think I was probably about 11, probably a bit too young to be watching it, and then gave it a proper watch. So I, I think I was at the age of I didn't really know who Ridley Scott was and probably not the age to be as acutely aware of directors as the way you know I am now now that I'm older
0: yeah and that's a pure reaction to a film that I got from Alien because I wasn't aware of Ridley Scott until I saw Alien I was 11 put it on the telly absolutely scared the shit out of me and probably only on on re-watches did I sort of notice well that's a brilliantly designed film because for the first part of the film it says oh my god that thing's going to kill everybody I'm so scared because I was 11 you know things do scare you more back then and for you, it looks like Gladiator was that film. It's like, it's just, wow, what the hell is this? Um, and it just completely sort of blows you away. Um, I mean, for me, I was obviously aware of Willie Scott, a big fan of his, loved Blade Runner, loved a lot of his other films. He'd had, a, had mixed fortunes in the 90s, like, he did Thelma and Louise, which we talked about it's in our top 10, Oscar nominated. Everyone went, wow, look how good R- Ridley Scott is. He can you know, he can, he can direct actors. He can always direct actors, but you know what Hollywood attitudes are like. He followed that up with a historical epic, 1492, which I like. I will defend that film, but it didn't do that great. Um, sort of just about broke even on international box office, but did nothing in America. White Squall another decent film that didn't make much of an impact, and G.I. Jane, a very high-profile film, but I think it fell foul of not being a particularly interesting idea for a film, and there was a bit of a Demi Moore backlash going on. Um, some of which is, I think Demi Moore isn't... You know, was starting to act like a big star, and and uh, and she was part of the Bruce Willis power couple, and he was, at, he was acting out a bit. But some of it was just... Um, how dare Demi Moore be the highest paid star in Hollywood? Women shouldn't be allowed to do that kind of thing. And people really kind of backlashed her against her. So by the time 2000 comes around, Ridley Scott's been almost a decade without another hit. And I think people were sceptical. Biblical epic, and uh, not biblical epic, I mean, know, Roman epics. What the hell, you know, really? What, what What's he thinking? But it's such a pure story, isn't it? It's, um, like you say, just, just describe the story. A Roman general who... Um, and is all conquering and you know loved by the emperor is betrayed his family killed set into slavery and becomes a gladiator and then he fights back it's like what a fantastic like pitch that that's definitely getting watched you know and then he just fully realizes it you know we you know we haven't talked about in in all this discussion gladiator we haven't talked about joaquin phoenix he's fucking tremendous in that film all the, yeah, perform- all the performances are great, but Wacking Phoenix is probably... I know um, Russell Crowe's the one who got the Oscar for Best Actor, but I think Whacking uh, Phoenix's Commodus walks away with that film. And it's just... It's such a... It, it's such a balancing act. It takes so much skill to do a film in the year 2000 where you've got heroics and, you know, rousing Hans Zimmer music, which is just beautifully done. Do you know what I mean? The way, the way that main Gladiator theme comes is you sometimes have to wait eight or nine minutes in the scene and the score before the real bursting kind of dirt, that doesn't come straight away, you know, and, and, and a full on villain, a full on fucking mustache twirling, you know, a, a dastardly villain who's out to get everybody. And all of those things are quite old fashioned kind of, you know, things, but he just does it so well. I mean, he just shook the bottle up and put all the right ingredients in absolutely spot on. And it came out perfect, you know? Yeah. Um. So, while it's not my number one, I mean, I think I've got nearly as many good things to say about it as you. With Blade Runner, I think we've talked about how it, and you know, I, you know, I understand you saying all the best speeches that it should be from Blade Runner, but there are some, fan, there are some fantastic speeches in, uh, uh in in Blade Runner. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. That whole thing, just some fantastic quotes. It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? I. The reason I love Blade Runner is I just think it is a, it's just a perfect, perfect story. It's so beautifully done. It it has a resonance far beyond that story because people have gone into like the ins and outs of artificial intelligence and kind of, you know, sentient robots in, in so many different ways and the thing about blade runner is that there's a reason those that the replicants in blade runner are almost exactly like humans because that's that story is being told it's like there's a speech about saying you know we can control people better if we um give people a past and create a cushion or a pillow for their emotions and we can control people better and stop them acting out and decker goes memories you're talking about memories and this whole this whole talk about you know decker starts doubting whether his memories are real or whether they've been given to him but what it's meant to say is it's just got. It's got so many layers. In fact, I, I don't even want to say. I oh, really Scott wants you to think this. Wants you to think that because I think the film's themes have taken on a life of their own. There is there's this argument that all of us have had memories given to us. You know, they uh, society's put so much effort into telling you what you should remember as a society. Maybe not on a personal level, right? But all the nostalgia that we have for the past and all the all the discussions of what was like this and this control, if anyone says, oh, maybe maybe America didn't behave very well in the 19th century, the backlash is so powerful because they want people to remember things in a certain way. So it's about people as, as much as it's about replicants. It looks amazing. The music is fantastic. It's so powerful. And I think one of the things I love about Blade Runner, apart from the fact that it's just this amazing realistic world that special effects hold up, the beautiful amazing opening shot of, of you know 21st century cyberpunk New York but it's the fact that it leaves it open is Deckard a replicant or is Deckard a human and it doesn't answer the question and it's brilliant that Blade Runner 2049 didn't answer the question either because it has to be left open but you can believe that Deckard is a replicant yeah, yeah. or you can believe that he's a human right and whatever your interpretation, that film absolutely stands up. It is such a brilliantly contained story. It's just so amazing. And so many actors have done their best work in that film for Ridley Scott. Daryl Hannah's never been better. Sean Young's never been better. Rutger Hauer, Harrison Ford. It's it's absolutely superb. Every single scene is, is a fucking masterpiece of design by a, just a great, great director. Um, and obviously I've got that emotional journey that I went on with Blade Runner because Blade Runner was this film that didn't wasn't recognised for what it was, and then it was, and I felt like I'd gone on that journey with the film and with Ridley Scott, you know. Um, it just encapsulates everything I love about this film director. Um, so my, my number one is your number five. Your number one is my number three. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, what's... Uh, What's your thought on Blade Runner, by the way? If you do, you think um, do you think uh, De- you know, Harrison Ford's character is a replicant or not?
1: Um, I think Ridley Scott wants you to think he's a replicant, but I think it's also I think that might be because Ridley Scott wants people to kind of think about the film more. That's that's what I think about it. it gets, yeah, that ha- gets people thinking about it more.
0: I think it's very interesting that people making the film have very different views of things. It's like Ridley Scott thinks Deckard's a, a replicant, Harrison Ford. Certainly believes said at the time he believed Deckard was a human. That might have been just for the story, um, but he's got to. It's got to be unclear whether he is or not, because you want people to identify with him throughout the film and, and question your own existence, and then at the end go, well, maybe Roy Batty, Rutger Howe's character, is as human as I am. Which which yeah. is not to say I'm less human. It's actually to say, well, maybe this consciousness is more human than than we're giving it credit for um beautifully done so many so many good things to it um but R- Rutger Hauer's actually was very funny he said uh he, he was very dismissive of um Harrison Ford's uh D- Deckard's romance with uh, with Rachel he says that's basically like fucking a dishwasher <laughs> so that's Rutger Hauer for you
1: he was mental
0: Okay, so in a minute, I'm going to walk through what my little kind of blending of the scores has done. And I think we're going to have to discuss a few items and see if we've got there. And then, it, you know, then we'll talk about whether, you know, there's been any kind of, you know, injustice films that have been, you know, left out that, that should be in there or, or just just talk through that. Um, we might have sort of covered it slightly um, already, mate. But are there any sort of honourable mentions of films that you really like that didn't quite make your top 10 that we didn't uh, that we didn't get to?
1: So, for me, just probably Kingdom of Heaven and Matt Stickman. I don't think any of his other films really, for me anyway, came close to being in the top ten. Just looking at the ones that we missed out, let's go back to the start of his film career. So, um, Legend, Someone to Watch Over Me, Black Rain, Um, 1492 Conquest of Paradise, uh white squall gi jane hannibal matchstick Men, kingdom of heaven uh, i've never seen all the invisible children i don't think that's actually a film is it it's
0: a tv movie so i didn't yeah. count it
1: a good year body of lies robin hood prometheus the counselor exodus gods and kings alien covenant all the money in the world and yeah those are the ones we missed out i don't think any of them there jump out as to say oh they've been really hard done by like even like it's not like we've left out gladiator which is obviously a top three at least minimum and you know put in matchstick men it's like matchstick men and kingdom of heaven would maybe get ninth or tenth for me
0: Yeah, I mean... The
1: same for you for American Gangster.
0: Yeah, American Gangster just misses for me. I think Black Rain was very close for me. Black Rain was actually in my top 10 until I watched Napoleon. And then Napoleon kind of knocked it out. I love Black Rain. I think it's a really good film. I think it's an underappreciated cop thriller because I think it does an absolutely amazing job for someone of my era who loved films of that era. I don't know how it plays to a younger audience now, but in the late eighties, the style of kind of cop action movie had changed with die hard and lethal weapon and stuff like that. And what black rain did black rain said, all right, here's all the action you expect from a film film like that nowadays, but here is a story with a lot more consequence to it than fucking lethal weapon, which is a lot of fun and all of that. But it's really just about an excuse for Mel Gibson and Danny Glover to be kind of buddy cops and and kick ass. Right. Right. And Black Rain's got a lot more to it than that. It's got the culture clash with Japan. It's got the question marks over Michael Douglas' character. It's got an excellent relationship between him and Andy Garcia and him and uh, uh, Takakura Ken, the uh, the Japanese sort of liaison cop that they deal with. It's got a fantastic villain. It's some real fucking ass-kicking action scenes and, a, you know, climaxing in like a, a motorcycle chase and then fight in the mud in, in Japanese rice fields. It's a fucking tremendous film of its type. Um, but it, it misses out because he's just done films that I think just have just slightly more to yeah. them overall but Black Rain is a highly highly recommended fucking cop actioner American Gangster just missed out for me but it made your top 10 Matchstick Men just behind me what what about Body of Lies we've hardly discussed it nah I mean if, not, no. did you I mean have you seen it and just didn't like it very much I couldn't be asked with it
1: it's, it's it says a lot when you've got Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Russell Crowe in a film and I was just like oh no. It's not that it's terrible. I just it's nowhere near what it could have been, or compared to his other work. I think when you look at our top tens, I think you think, okay, so the ten films that are there probably deserve to be there. Some people might have hated House of Gucci and preferred Body of Lies or whatever, but I think when you look at it, the the films that definitely doesn't have to be in the top 10 we've put in there. I think that's that would be a joke. Yeah, no,
0: section. I mean, I agree with you about Body of Lies in the sense that I actually enjoyed it when I watched it. Um, but it's kind of like, if you think about Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio, you just think it it just doesn't come up in conversation anymore among their lists of films. It's like, it was absolutely fine, but you know everything that Leonardo DiCaprio has done before or since is just a a, a good couple of notches above it in terms of overall quality you know, and Russell Crowe's done, you know, far better films than that, and so has Ridley Scott. It's like, it's a perfectly fine, but not very consequential film, you know? Yeah. Which, I mean, I've might, I i mean, I've got it on the shelf. I might give it another watch because that whole kind of, you know, espionage under thing. I just, it, I just remember at the time thinking it, it, it's good, but it's not quite made as much of this. Like you say, it's not made as much of the story as it could have done, not as good as it could have been. But okay, so here is what we do have. Our combined top 10 when we list the 10 films that we each described um it is 12 films okay and uh what that means is a couple of films that people have kind of said are you know missing out or, or on the verge So let's have a look at it um number 12 just missing out of this top 10 is American Gangster and number 11 just missing out is House of Gucci which okay. are two films that you had in your top ten? I mean, how strongly you were feeling about them about them missing out entirely.
1: So, House of Gucci misses out because where was it in your list? Did you have it in your list?
0: Well, what I've done is if it, if if a film wasn't in the top ten at all for a person, it's got a score of eleven. So, for example, Kingdom of Heaven's not in my t- not in your top ten, so it's got a score of eleven in the calculation. And saguchi has got a score of eleven in, in, in mind. So it's just it just otherwise you can't do the, the calculations, calculation. And because right? you
1: pick Kingdom of Heaven, it goes into the top ten yeah. because you gave it a score. Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: So I mean we can talk about that because essentially King Kingdom of Heaven napoleon the duelist, house of future american gangster are all very 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 close to each other in you know in 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 their rankings right above that above that the martian upwards it's like much less controversial there's no doubt i mean basically the the lowest one here you get get getting inside inside baseball here for for the listeners if you take the average scores of alien to the martian it goes you know from two to 6.5 and then it drops down to nine for kingdom of heaven to 10.5 for American gangsters. There's like a barely a, barely a cigarette paper between those five films. So there's a discussion about which one of those has maybe been, you know, it, it, you know, if, if any of them are sort of un, unjustly done. I mean, you're arguing about kingdom of heaven is that the, um, uh, the director's cut was never actually a cinema release. It was a, you know, it's almost like an extra special feature on a, on a DVD. It's, I guess the way you've looked at it, it's not really the film that we, you know, it's not like Blade Runner's director's cut became a thing in its own right, you know? Yeah. Um, and Napoleon you haven't seen, so maybe that's sort of, you know, sort of unfair. And if if I'd put Napoleon in my top three and it was right at the top, that might be sort of more you know, strong, but it's almost like that's not, you know, not featured there. So I guess the discussion about if, 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 if you, if you were going to fight for how to and American gangster foot to be in the top 10, would you, would you knock any of those others nah, out?
1: I'm fine with it. I enjoyed them far more. I think kingdom of heaven has done very well to be anywhere near this because it's not that good unless you've seen the director's cut personally um but because it's up against house of gucci and american gangster i don't particularly care that much if it was a case of maybe kicking out the jewelers i'd be like no get kingdom of heaven the fuck out of there it's not that good but it's against House of Gucci and American Gangster,
0: sort of. <laughs> Understood, and and I would recommend watching the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. I mean, it is an absolutely tremendous film. It really sort of deepens a, 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 the story. So you're you're not you're not going to fight for House of Gucci and American Gangster to to, no. to 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 knock anyone they out. They
1: were perfectly fine. I enjoyed them both, and I think they were right to be in like the very lower end of my top ten. So okay,
0: yeah. so let's get at this. At the moment, Napoleon the Duelists have, have got an equal score between the two of them. Um, and is it maybe fairer to put The Duelists above Napoleon because you've not seen it, and Napoleon's regarded by most people as as, as not being perfect for all the reasons that, that are widely discussed?
1: I think I would personally put The Duelists just above it because we've both seen it, and I think we both agree that it's a very good film. So that's my that would be my argument, if we're putting Napoleon, what, 10th? mm-hmm or does where is it so let's start again because you you've explained it but i think we need to clarify what's where so 12th is
0: 12th is american gangster and 11th right. is House gucci 10th is kingdom of heaven no 10th t- equal is napoleon and the duelists
1: where's kingdom of heaven
0: just above that
1: so, wait so that it's a ninth yeah no well then that kingdom of heaven can go 10th napoleon can go ninth and the duelists can go eighth or whatever that, no,
0: that, that's fair. They're so
1: close Kingdom in. Kingdom of Heavens. Kingdom of Heaven's getting away with fucking muddle at this point.
0: <laughs> I mean I'll I'll die in a hill for the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, but yeah, I am but con- I'm, I, mean, I am I'm conscious of what you're saying. Okay, so Kingdom of Heaven tenth, Napoleon 9th, The Duelist eighth. Now, it's at at this point the the Martian comes in at seventh. Okay? Now let's come back to that because I know The Martian is a very beloved film of yours because the two films that are just above it a Black Hawk down and Thelma and Louise—they're they're equal with so, each other and slightly above the Martian. Can you live with both of them being above the Martian?
1: I would put Black Hawk down, like seventh, if that makes sense. So I would put Black Hawk down seventh. I'd put the Martian sixth, and I'd put Thelma and Louise five. Is how I would rank that, just because Black I think Hawk the Martian down. is the Martian is better overall than Black Hawk down personally for me. But I think Thelma and Louise is a bit more of a classic, and I think it would be a bit too much to say that. Even though I like it more than Thelma Louise, I recognise that it's...
0: Look, I understand what you're saying about classic. Black Hawk Down. M- much as I love that as a film, it is still a little bit like some people went in, they did some fighting, and then the fighting finished, whereas The Martian and Thelma Louise, there's more of a story arc for all of the characters. So yeah. I totally get I would, where you're coming from.
1: So is that Black Hawk Down 7th,
0: Martian 6th, five, Thelma right? Louise 5th. Okay, uncontroversially from this point, The Last Duel is 4th. Yeah, I think that's... Fair enough you know between you and me i mean i had it third you i had it fourth you had it third so it's going to be knocking around there now yeah. our top three is going to be a bit of a discussion here okay because alien comes in um uh, I, I, alien and gladiator come in ahead of blade runner because blade runner was the top of my list but was about halfway down yours okay so at the moment, we're looking at Blade Runner being third and having to decide between Alien and Gladiator for which one's the best. Are you okay with that sort of uh, Blade Runner third? And then we're now going to have a discussion about which which of these last two films goes to the top.
1: So I don't particularly want to fight for uh, um, Blade Runner. I, I think I'm fine with it being third, but it's also it's your favourite Ridley Scott film. For me, I'm fine with the top three being Blade Runner, then Alien, then Gladiator.
0: But at, at the moment, we've got Blade Runner third, and Alien and Gladiator first equal. Now, the fact the fact is right that you know I, I, this this has to be a combined school. So the fact that it only comes in fifth on your list is is relevant. I mean, if we were talking about Blade Runner, Alien, and Gladiator being on a par, I'd I would start dying on a hill for Blade Runner, right? what's happened is, is that it's it's come in slightly lower and we're battling between Alien and, and Gladiator, which I think were right up at the top for me as well, you know? So it's yeah. about saying, what do we do with Alien and Gladiator?
1: I mean, personally, for me, I would say Gladiator's top just because I feel like you could watch it again and again and again. I feel like I, pro- I probably watch Gladiator at least once a year, whereas I think the last time I watched Alien was probably a couple of years ago. And I've pr- I'm probably not going to watch it again before the end of the year, if you get what I mean? Now, that is mm-hmm. obviously just my personal... I just absolutely love Gladiator. I love Ancient Rome. I've been to Rome God knows how many times. I just, I love it. I think it'll always be one of my favourite films. It would take a lot for me to, you know, not consider it one of probably my top 10 films ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whether you're okay with saying, oh, well, actually, because I know Alien is the film that you saw before, Gladiator, so you probably have a, like a softer spot for it.
0: Well, in terms of a softer spot, I mean, uh, you know, I'm 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 not afraid to admit it. I I cried at the end of Gladiator, first time I watched it in the cinema. Yeah, Um, I'd been through so much with that character, and it does kind of depend on what you're um, uh, looking for or or or, or what or what you recognise in a film because you know you know Alien, obviously you love Ripley, right? But Ripley's arc, you know, ends up going over several films. And when you get to the end of Alien 3, however compromised the film Alien 3 is, you get an ending for Ripley, which has a lot of emotional resonance. Whereas Gladiator, you get the full, complete arc of Maximus in one film. Yeah. In one film and you see him, you know, you know, right, right, right there, he's talking about, you know, he's picturing walking through his wheat fields to get home to see his family. And you see him picturing his wife and his kid, and just wanting to get back to them when when all of this is over. And then after everything that he's taken away from them, he can't see them. And then you get to the end, and he's going to get to see his family again, but not in the way you thought. It's um, it's a it's a, it's, it's a much more emotionally powerful film in that way than Alien, because Alien is about scaring you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I
1: think. It- Alien is excellent for what it does and in terms of you know setting the standard for sci-fi and horror films I think that's what's unique about it is that the way that the the spaceship was designed and also the the characters and their role but then the horror elements of that the chestburster jump scare and the kind of even like the scenes with like the cat hissing and not being able to fully see the the alien I think that kind of stuff really sort of like set precedent for how Horror films would they be made? They've obviously ripped the fucking ass out of it now with Insidious number forty eight and The Nun thirty two mm-hmm. and all that fucking nonsense. But I think, I think if you would look at it in two ways, Alien did a lot in terms of being so unique because there'll be other films like Gladiator, if you know what I mean, there's literally going to be mm. a Gladiator 2, and there's dozens and th- loads of films about ancient Rome, and there will be more in the future, whereas Alien, I feel like, was the first of its kind. They ripped the fucking ass out of it with sequels and versus Predators and Prometheus and all that pish. But if you look at it, a standalone film, I think Alien did a lot more in terms of technical stuff, and as although Gladiator's beautiful, I think the kind of visualisation of, you know, the universe in 300 years or whenever it is i think it did a lot for that but if you're picking a film that is better i'm quite comfortable in saying that gladiator is the better film
0: the The, the other thing about gladiator is that while you everything you say about alien I, I you know i take on board about the way he kind of created that world and it's unique in many ways gladiator is it's set new standards for how you could depict a historical period it looks you know it's not just that it looks incredible it's just he's brought the colosseum and a 50,000 crowd to life you know and he's he's and the way he's brought that historical period to life when we talked about the films he's done the most of that those kind of historical dramas and historical epics it's perhaps when you actually look back over his era maybe gladiators is a better representation of what it is that Ridley Scott brings to the table more so because I know Alien is like has got brilliant design, but the brilliant design of, of Gladiator brings a whole brings the Roman Empire to life, you know.
1: I think right. I think the way we look at it, Alien's got its brilliant moments, and Gladiator's brilliant for all the reasons. But I think if you were to out of the two films, name combined name the five best speeches from both the films. Not a single
0: one comes. No, out. yeah. A- a- Alien's not about the speeches. It's about, it's about other but things. But even that,
1: like, it's not even like that. It's just like iconic lines. Like, mm-hmm. there's lines that I thought about in Gladiator when we were talking about it there. I thought, you know, when they do the, the first fight in the Colosseum and they're basically meant to get butchered by mm-hmm. the um Carth- the Carthaginians. Mm-hmm. And says, who fought with me? I fought with it. And he's just fucking, he's just got his head in the ball and you think, oh my fucking God, I'm going to shag Russell Crowe after this film. You mm-hmm. know, like, he's just, you're so, every fucking speech, you know, is just, it's just fucking awesome. And then when... Even when, like, Oliver Reed goes, I did not say I knew him. I said I shook his hand once. Like, that line in his cringe, if that's delivered by any other actor. But because it's by Oliver Reed, I kind of like... Oh, it's you the study.
0: He sets up so much where he goes, Win the crowd, Spaniard. Oh. It's... Yeah, look, I'm... And when we are fat and can suckle no more. Oh. Yeah, I mean... Uh, let me put it another way i mean if you if you look we had primetime mitch on and if primetime richard never heard of um, of ridley scott you'd show him alien because you know he's a horror fan you said watch that you realize what an artist ridley scott is and then you'll get the rest of his films watched but for a lot of people i think you'd say if they'd never heard of ridley scott you say how do i get this person so completely hooked right that they'll you know that they'll watch all of his other films i'd be leaning towards gladiator because it's just got everything and I, I mean I will admit, I'm, I'm ai I'm a fucking Ridley Scott loyalist, right? I will defend a lot of his films that other people won't, yeah. Um, you know, I'll I'll defend 1492 Conquest of Paradise, which is probably the most beautiful film he's made. It looks absolutely incredible, and I, I actually will stand behind a lot of what that film does and says. Um I, I I would only do that for some of his lesser regarded films because of my loyalty to his absolutely greatest films. And I think if I wanted to turn someone else into that kind of Ridley Scott loyalist, if I wanted to get them hooked, I'd probably show them Gladiator. Yeah. Like if I'm saying, I'm going to sit on my youngest down and say, right, right you, you know, you know, watch some great films now. When he's old enough, I'm going to be putting Gladiator on before Alien because I want to see him jumping up and down and kind of absolutely enthralled by the story, knowing that after that, all I'll need to say is Ridley Scott and he's prepared to give every other film he's made a chance, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: I think that, that I think that's just and and that's not taking anything away from Alien. It is comfortably number two for me. But I think I just think Gladiator Rouse is more of a reaction. It like you say, it's got the kind of more emotional side to it. Mm-hmm. Like I think the original draft of Alien Ripley was meant to die at the end, wasn't she?
0: I'm not sure. Actually, I think, I you've think just you've was. just given I, me a, you've just given me a Google rabbit hole to go down after this. I've,
1: I think I've read this somewhere. I think Ripley was meant to die, and the alien impersonated her voice and was sending back transmissions. I might be making that up completely, but look it up for me, I'll keep talking. I think if that was the ending of that film, you'd have gone, oof. Because that ending in itself is pretty cool. You wouldn't even have to make a second film. Do you know what I mean? You'd think, oh fuck, she went through all of that and now she's died. And you could have that ending of, oh yeah, she made it because she's talking, but it turns out it's the alien mimicking her voice. Mm-hmm. And you'd go, oof. But in Gladiator, the that film doesn't work if Maximus lives. Yeah, You what you need that reaction of feeling that emotion of him going to yeah. the afterlife to Elysium and seeing his, his wife and child again. So I think that for me is what kind of ticks it, is that you get much more emotionally invested. And I've said it about four times now, but the fucking speeches.
0: Yeah. yeah. And uh, a quick Google indicates that, that that is very much a, I've seen articles that contend that that's the case. I'm now going to go and deep dive further and see if I can find a copy of the script or, you know, a primary source from the original production saying that was it. You know, whether that's Walter Hill, Dan O'Bannon, David Guiler, the people who produced it, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into that. That's very interesting. But yeah, I would look. Um again, I'm I'm a defender of Alien Three because I think the the assembly cut of that is actually a, a good film, um, even though there are flaws because of the the shit show that they created before David Finch took over, and and the final the final ending for Ripley, ending it that way for Ripley was actually amazing, and they ruined it by 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 you know, literally resurrecting a alien resurrection. Um, but Gladiator, look, I, I can live with that. If it was my own personal top 10, like I say, I would have Blade Runner comfortably at the top of it because I just love that film for all those reasons. But I think I am. I can live with the list that we've created as they combined um, the combined wisdom of the Double Real Film pod, Podcast on Ridley Scott Films. So shall, shall I read out the top 10 that we've arrived at? Yes. Uh, in reverse order... Number ten, Kingdom of Heaven. Very lucky, sorry. But I will I will tell people go and watch the the, the director's cut and you'll see. I, I, I think that film is valid in that form. Number nine, Napoleon, number eight, the duelists, number seven, Blackhawk Down, Number six, The Martian, Number five, Thelma Louise, Number four, The Last Duel, Number three, Blade Runner, Number Two, Alien, Number One, Gladiator. Um, and that's where we've arrived at. If you look at this list, it is six, six of his top 10 are from the 21st century. So it's a, it's a fairly good sign that he, um, you know, that there are some people, if you did a top 10 of their films, it would be massively stacked towards the films they did early on. Um, you know, I love John Carpenter, but if we were going to do a top 10 of his films, there'd be nothing after 1988. Um, so, you know, I think his, his longevity is, is kind of shown up there. Um, I, I think that's 10 films that most people would be very lucky to have in, in their list of films at all, let alone in their top 10. So that's where we've got to with um, with Ridley Scott. So thank you very much for for going on that journey with me, mate. Thank you, audience, for listening to our top ten. Please let us know what you think of our top ten. Are you, you know, are there people already taking to uh, <laughs> taking umbrage at Blade Runner not being not being at number one? Um, I, I think glad I think if it was something other than Alien or Gladiator or, or, or above it, there might be more controversy. But I think that's a that's a strong list. But thank you for listening to us that's our big conversation. That is the end of the December 2023 issue of of Double Reel, although we've released this installments to go over the holiday period. Um, Hope you're having a great time and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast is hosted on the Podbean
1: network and edited in Audacity. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Versus. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now, and we will try and get another one out for you soon.
0: So this is me, James Adamson, signing off, and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episodes will be special anthologies of our year-long projects Legal Cage of Consent and the Kronenberg Institute. Then, towards the end of January, we'll release the first part of our regular episode 45. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And at my signal, unleash hell.